Uh, I'm told we're talking about Mary tonight, uh, our mother. Uh, so we'll jump into that. So speaking of Protestants, some objections that often get launched at us Catholics. You Catholics worship Mary. You treat her like a fourth person in the Trinity. You Catholics kneel and pray before statues of Mary. You're worshiping idols. Or they could ask him a question for him. Why do Catholics pray to Mary? The Bible says that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. So we'll come back to those objections later on. I just note, I know that I've read before and I've talked to people. Mary is kind of like, all the disagreements between Protestants and Catholics, Mary kind of like encapsulates it all. That's like the, the last, some, a Protestant sometimes when they're thinking about becoming Catholic, that where they're most hung up and the hardest thing to get over and to understand is Mary. And once they get that, then they, then they come over. So, so we'll come back to these objections after we're done talking, see if they're true. So who is this woman? Gospel of Luke tells us more about Mary than any other book in the New Testament. Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, he's, he's talking to this guy, Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is, but he says to him, many people have undertaken to write about Jesus of Nazareth. So I, too, have, have researched this, and I want to write about it so that you know what you've been taught is true. So Luke is explicitly saying, I've done my research. I've looked into this, right? And so there's a, a nice, pious tradition who knows if it's true or not. Who cares? If it's not true, it should be. That, that's the category. But that Luke interviewed the Blessed Mother to ask her about um, the, the early childhood of Jesus. Uh, Mark doesn't say anything at all about Jesus being a child. Matthew talks uh, uh, about the Annunciation to Joseph and stuff. And then John talks about Jesus' divine origin. Matthew, Mark, and Luke will talk a bit about Jesus' earthly uh, human origin. And then and, uh, John talks about his divine origin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Um, so Luke tells us more about Mary than anyone, any other gospel. She lived in Nazareth, which is Galilee, so here's the Holy Land. You can see Judah and Israel. That's all part of the Holy Land. Um, but Galilee is up in the north there. You can see that tiny little lake there. Galilee is a little, like subtropical, um, and so it's very kind of beautiful, mild climate. Um, and life kind of revolves around Galilee, uh, around the lake and fishing and stuff. And that's where many of the apostles lived. And, and, and so you hear the gospel stories of them being out on the water and, and doing their fishing and whatnot. She was probably really, really young when the Annunciation happened, 14, 15 years old. That's when a, that's when a girl was uh, betrothed to be married at this time. Um, and she was a virgin betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal means the promise to marry someone. Their, their customs around marriage are a lot different than ours. Um, when you're betrothed to someone to be married, you're considered for legal purposes to be married. So for all intents and purposes, when Mary is betrothed to Joseph, but before they come to live together, that's stage two. Stage one is betrothal. For all legal purposes, you're married. Stage two is when they, there's actual ritual where they form a house of their own and they come together. Okay, so Mary was uh, married when the Annunciation happened. The Annunciation, the request comes, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then her answer comes, her beautiful answer. Let it be done unto me according to your word. The Angelus Prayer, if you know the Angelus Prayer, 
that's uh, it's praying with this this moment. Uh, Mary's yes to God. Um, so her fiat then, her yes, makes up for the refusal of Eve to serve God. In this point forward, she's referred to as the new Eve. This is a this is a biblical thing. Jesus uh, is called by Saint Paul as the new Adam. And so it stands to reason, you just take one more step, and all the church fathers did this. If there's a new Adam that rejuvenates and revives and brings life back into the human race, there must be a new Eve, too. It took Adam and Eve uh, to have uh, a human nature and, and to screw that up. And so it takes a new Adam and a new Eve to bring it back. Um, here's a little comparison. You can see uh, Eve, between Eve and Mary, and why we call her the new Eve. Uh, it's like the exact opposite. She really is reversing in every way what happened uh, with Eve. Eve was tempted by a fallen angel to say no. Mary was proposed by, by God's messenger and, and said yes. Adam loses, loses grace for all mankind. Jesus restores it. And then Eve cooperates in Adam's sin. And, and Mary cooperates in Jesus' yes. So she, in every way, uh, she's reversing what... Uh, what Eve did. So here, Eve, Eve means like, Eve means mother of the living, right? Uh, in Latin, so the Hail Mary in, in Latin, Ave. So there, there's a, even kind of a connection there in the Hail Mary, Ave Maria. It's literally reverse. You see how it's reversing? Eva is Latin, Eve, mother of all the living. You reverse that, Ave, Hail Mary. And so even in, the, in the, that salutation that the, that the angel gives to Mary, uh, it's reversing everything that, that the old Eve did. So what her yes actually do? Redemption of mankind by Jesus Christ thus begins with a request by God and the free consent of a human being. And so this is very beautiful because this is Mary's yes is a template for every yes to God. Everything that's worthwhile in the life of grace and the spiritual life is initiated by God. God is pure activity. He's, he's pure gift. He's pure giving of himself. And so we never like control God or manipulate God into doing something we think needs to be done. He's already supplying everything that we need. We just need to learn how to say yes to that. And so when we struggle in the life of, uh, of, of grace and struggle in prayer or anything like that, it isn't an issue with God that God isn't giving me something that I need. It's me. I need to learn how to say yes to him. And that's why I can look to Mary. Mary said yes perfectly, fully, without reservation. Um, and so this little template, God initiating grace, here grace for all mankind, and Mary's request, fiat, let it be done, whatever you want. Here's uh, Reinhold Schneider. 20th century German writer, he said, Mary's response is the most momentous word in history. This is an excerpt from a, uh, a homily given by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. St. Bernard of Clairvaux is a saint from the 12th or 11th century. I think it crosses over there, 12th, 11th century, the 1100s and the, and the thousands. Um, and he, he really focuses in on this moment that Mary says yes. And he, he imagines with it. He imagines being there and, and begging Mary, please say yes. So much rides on this. Please say yes. Everyone's waiting for you. So I'll just, I'll read it. Uh, and this is in the breviary. 
uh, that, that priests and religious and lay people can pray. And it happens every Advent. So it's very beautiful. You have heard, O virgin, that you will conceive and bear a son. You have heard that it will not be by a man, but by the Holy Spirit. The angel awaits an answer. It's time for him to return to God who sent him. We too are waiting, O lady, for your word of compassion. The sentence of condemnation weighs heavily upon us. The price of our salvation is offered to you. We shall be set free at once if you consent. In the eternal word of God, we all came to be, and behold, we die. In your brief response, we are to be remade in order to be recalled to life. Tearful Adam with his sorrowing family begs this of you, O loving virgin. In their exile from paradise, Abraham begs it. David begs it. All the other holy patriarchs, your ancestors, ask it of you, as they did in the country of the shadow of death. This is what the whole earth waits for. Prostrate at your feet. It is right in doing so. For on your word depends comfort for the wretched, ransom for the captive, freedom for the condemned. Indeed, salvation for all the sons of Adam, the whole of your race. Answer quickly, O virgin. Reply in haste to the angel, or rather through the angel to the Lord. Answer with the word, receive the word of God. Speak your own word, conceive the divine word. Breathe a passing word, embrace the eternal word. Why do you delay? Why are you afraid? Believe, give praise, and receive. Let humility be bold. Let modesty be confident. This is no time for virginal simplicity to forget prudence. In this matter alone, O prudent virgin, do not fear to be presumptuous. Though modest silence is pleasing, dutiful speech is now more necessary. Open your heart to faith, O blessed virgin, your lips to praise, your womb to the Creator. See the desired of all nations as it as at your door knocking to enter. If he should pass by because of your delay, in sorrow you would begin to seek him afresh, the one whom your soul loves. Arise, hasten, open. Arise in faith, hasten in devotion, open in praise and thanksgiving. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, she says, be it done to me according to your word. Isn't that beautiful? That's great. You can see how he, I love this, this uh, fourth paragraph here. Answer with the word, receive the word of God, speak your own word, conceive the divine word, breathe a passing word, embrace the eternal word. So he's playing with the fact that her son to be conceived is the word of God and she receives him through speaking this word. Beautiful. It's beautiful how, he, how he's encouraging her. Please <laughs> say yes, we need it, we're dying. We need you to say yes. In a way, it's almost comical. Like, does Mary need to be encouraged like that? Of course not. But you can see how beautiful is the prayer of that. And, um, and how he imagines, you know, these great people that come before that have laid the foundations of faith, the patriarchs, David and Abraham and, and everyone before. Um, they depend on it too. All, all of that they did and, and, and worked for and, and their fidelity, Abraham's fidelity and offering his own son, all of that. Uh, it's all for naught if Mary doesn't say yes. And so, so after daily mass here, we pray the Memorare, right? Remember, most gracious Virgin Mary that never was a note. That was written by the same guy that wrote this, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. Mary, she's the new Eve. She's also the Ark of the Covenant, but a New Testament Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the place where the Ten Commandments were kept. It 
so the Israelites, they're marching through the desert. They go up on Mount Moses, goes on Mount Sinai. He receives the Ten Commandments. And shortly after, God instructs them how to build this receptacle, exactly how he wants it. He tells them the exact measurements. He tells them, you know, the, how to carve the, the cherubim, the little angels that are supposed to go on it, the materials they're supposed to use. He tells them exactly how to make this Ark of the Covenant that they keep the Ten Commandments in. And so the Ark, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't just like a box, you know. Um, God dwelled in the Ark in a unique way. Um, and so the, the Israelites, when they went around with it, they went around parading uh, with it and, and offering incense before it and worship before it. Um, in the temple, they kept it. When they finally did build their grand temple to God, where true worship was offered to God from their perspective, um, they kept the Ark of the Covenant in there. David, one of the most uh, important scenes from David's life and him becoming really the king uh, is when he brings the Ark of the Covenant out from this tent into Jerusalem uh, home. And so the Ark is super, super important, important. And one little connection here, the Ten Commandments called the Decalogue. Decalogue means the Ten Words. So the Ten Commandments, they're not just like these abstract rules, it's God speaking to the, to the Israelites. And so the Ark of the Covenant, unique dwelling place of God, but it also was a receptacle of the Word of God. That's where the words of God were kept that, that God spoke to the Israelites. So you can see how is Mary the Ark of the New Covenant? She is the dwelling place, the perfect receptacle prepared by God in this New Testament context for his word to dwell, for his word to be kept safe. Um, so that's a very beautiful thing too. And th- these two things, the New Eve and the Ark of the Covenant, this is old, old and it's biblical. It's biblical stuff, you can tell. Okay, what we believe, there are four dogmatic teachings that the church has divined in a very, in her very precise way. Uh, easy acronym to use to uh, remember it is DIVA. Mary is a, a diva. Uh, she is the divine mother. She's the immaculate conception. She's perpetually a virgin. And she's assumed in the heaven, body, and soul. So Mary really is a diva. I don't know who came up with that, but uh, they did well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy to remember. So first, divine mother. We celebrate that feast we just did last week. We can half and go January 1st. Mary is the mother of God. Uh, the Three of the four are the holy days of obligation. So there are, there are six holy days of obligation. One, we, we don't have to go. Uh, they, get, they move it to Sunday. That's the ascension, 40 days after, after Easter. Um, the other one would be Christmas, All Saints Day. So those are three. But then the other three are all days that we are celebrating the mysteries connected to Mary that she's the divine mother, that she was assumed uh, body and soul in the heaven, and that she's immaculately conceived. So just wanted to make that connection quick. So motherhood in general, it's not a relationship to a nature, but to a person. My mother didn't give birth to this like abstract human nature. Right? She gave birth to me, Jared Wolf, you know, a whole person, right? Um, Jesus is not a human person. He is a divine person, right? Uh, I think, actually, I know I did this last time I was here, the difference between that question, who, and the question, what. Jesus, if you ask who he is, he's a person, a divine person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you ask what Jesus is, he's two things. 
He has a human nature, and he has a divine nature, right? And so I mean, you could do that with any of you. If I ask, what are you? You would say, I'm a human being, right? If I ask, who are you? You'd give me uh, your name, right? Um, with Jesus, it's a little bit different. If I ask what he is, it's complex. Human nature, divine nature. If I ask who he is, one, this one person, right? Motherhood is related to that person, right? Fundamentally, motherhood is about giving birth to this, uh, this person. So when it comes to, to Mary um, being the mother of Jesus, she gave birth to this divine person. There is no human person. There's a human nature. But he is a divine person. And so she is mother of this divine person. She's the mother of God. Jesus didn't become divine after his birth, right? But Mary didn't give birth uh, to, she didn't, she's not the origin of divine nature either, right? Nature, God existed before Mary, existed after, right? Uh, but this divine person being born here on earth, Mary was mother of that person. Therefore, since the person Mary gave birth to a divine person, she's rightly called the mother of God. There's actually, there's a, what I just kind of summarized there, there's a history here. There's this um, bishop of Constantinople whose name was Nestorius. And he read the, the Gospels, and he would say, Jesus, sometimes it seems like we're, 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 we're talking about and we're seeing this human person. And, and that, he said, it was the Christ, the Messiah. And so when Jesus wept, when, Je when it says Jesus was sad, when it says Jesus was hungry, right? He said, okay, we're talking about a human person, and that is the Christ. Other, other parts, when Jesus is walking on water, when he's forgiving sins, he's like, okay, now we're talking about God. And that's the Son of God. They're different. And then he said, therefore, this stuff that's going around, this pious stuff where Mary's being called the mother of God shouldn't do that. We should not call Mary the mother of God. She did not, she's not the origin of the divine nature. That part's true, right? But he said we can't call her the mother of God. Um, we should call her mother of the Christ, mother of this human person. And uh, uh, fast forward, St. Uh, Cyril and Alexandria got really mad at him and called the council and they threw him in jail. So that, <laughs> that, that, did, that did with that. Um, but you see his mistake, right? Jesus isn't two different persons. He's one person, right? And so if we say she's not the mother of God, we end up denying the incarnation. Now, Nestorius, he didn't want to deny the incarnation, but that's, that was the consequences of, of speaking the way he wanted to speak. Saying that Jesus is not God, knowing that Mary gave birth to Jesus, that would deny the incarnation. Or we would have to say, like Nestorius ended up doing, that, that there's two different persons there. But we wouldn't want to say that either, right? In fact, we need Jesus to, have, to be one person and to have divine and human nature, right? Uh, here's why. So uh, this offense against God, right? It creates the original sin. It creates an infinite gap between God and man, right? Therefore, there needs to be a divine power to bridge that gap. It's an infinite gap. God is infinite, right? So there has to be divine power. But at the same time, any offense, the person who's offended them, the person who owes a penalty should pay it, right? Therefore, there has to be a human being in some sense to pay this 
debt to God, right? Therefore, it makes the most sense that we would have our God-man, someone with the divine power who can bridge the gap, but also someone who can really say that he has a human nature and he's able to pay it for us, right? And so it's important that, that Jesus isn't two persons, that he's one person, that this one person can actually speak for humanity and pay our debt, but at the same time that he has the power to bridge that infinite gap. And so this is the, I mean, it gets to the heart. When we, when we you know, have that theological dispute about it, it can get kind of high in technical language and stuff. And, you know, why do we care about what this guy 1,600 years ago said? Because our salvation's at stake. You know, we want to speak rightly about these things. So who said what? Not only was Mary the mother of him who was born in Bethlehem, but of him who before the world was eternally born of the Father from a mother in time and at the same time man and God. Who do you think said that? Anyone? Saint Paul? Saint Bernard of Clairvaux? I set you up. Martin Luther said that. <laughs> Martin Luther. Isn't that something? There's a, there's a big difference between what modern Protestants say and what their founders say. And this is a good example. Martin Luther had no problem with Mary. He had no problem with Mary. Uh, when faith in the Mother of God declines, faith in the Son of God and God the Father declines also. Right? So when we stop believing in, in Mary and in her intercession and in her role uh, in our redemption... Faith in the in the Son of God and God the Father declines also. That's what this guy's saying. Anyone anyone know who said this? Anyone? An atheistic philosopher, Ludwig Feuerbach. But he's an atheist. But he was learned in history, and uh, he was just making an observation, an honest observation. Okay, so divine motherhood. Mary is mother of God. One simple reason: she's the mother of Jesus, and Jesus is God. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. It's that simple. Okay? Immaculate Conception, December 8th, another holy day of obligation. This was declared uh, December 8th, 1854 by Pius IX. This is his exact verbiage that he used. The most blessed Virgin Mary was from the moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Oh, I should say too, uh, I used to get in arguments with my grandma about that the Immaculate Conception means Mary. She got it in her head that uh, in, in, we're talking about Jesus because Jesus doesn't have sin. And I would say, no, grandma. I'm like, going to I've been in school for like four years with this stuff. Why don't you believe me? You know, it's Mary. Ma Mary's Immaculate Conceived. And then uh, last year, my first year as a priest, I don't know why I never noticed before, but last year I did when I had to preach on it. We read the Gospel of the Annunciation when Jesus is conceived on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, the day we're celebrating the conception of Mary, right? So now I get it. It gets confusing. But this is Mary, not Jesus, okay? So the Immaculate Conception, Mary was preserved from original sin from the first moment of her existence, but... She was redeemed by Jesus. She was redeemed by Jesus. At the beginning, I met, brought up that, that accusation. You know, the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. We believe that, and we still teach it. Mary was 
mediated between God by Jesus' graces, but in a different way. So proactive redemption. The fruits of Christ's redemption was applied to Mary to preserve her from sin. It's like this. If I got this hole in the ground, and I got a guy here uh, stuck in the hole, and I get a, I'm given a ladder, this would be... This would be our state after original sin. We're stuck in a hole, can't get out by ourselves. We're given this ladder uh, to get out, and that's the salvation that Jesus gives us, right? We're all original sin, we've all sinned personally. We need help to get out of this hole, right? If you have another person, they're walking along, and then they're told, stop, there's a hole there. Don't go any further. I'm gonna keep you from that hole. Right? They're still saved by this favor, by this grace, right? But in a different way. They were prevented from ever going into the hole, right? This is how Mary was saved. She was still, original sin was still kept from her by grace, but it was kept from ever touching her, ever. But for us, we fell in the hole, and then we were given the grace to get out. Why would Jesus do that for Mary? Why would God the Father do that for Mary? because she was meant to be the receptacle of the word of God. And so it's just fitting and makes sense that, that God would prepare the best receptacle that he could. And he did in Mary. Was this invented by the church? Like 1854, I'm not a historian, but that's like 1854 years after Jesus was born, right? Seems like a long gap, you know, where did this come from, right? Um, the deposit of faith is the heritage of faith contained in sacred scripture and the sacred tradition, meaning everything that God wanted to teach and everything he wanted us to know for our salvation, he in fact deposited in the scriptures and in tradition in the apostolic age, meaning uh, with the death of the last apostle, who was John, there's no more to be said. It's all been said in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. But that doesn't mean we understand it perfectly. Right? That doesn't mean we understand it perfectly. And so over time, as the church as a whole meditates on the scripture and meditates on, on sacred tradition and celebrates the liturgy and the mass, she comes to a deeper understanding of the mysteries that God has given. Right? And so it isn't a change, the fact that it was taught in 1854, it isn't a change in church teaching. It's just that the church has come to a clarity in her understanding about Mary and the role that she plays in redemption. And 1854, um, I mean, it's just the year that it was officially declared. There are lots and lots of churches and lots and lots of images of Mary, the Immaculate Conception, long before 1854. And there are feast days celebrating the Immaculate Conception long before 1854. And so you can find it all over the place. The church always, always, always believed it. But the church doesn't define something until someone denies it, right? And so when there's theological disputes, someone's denying it, then the church says, no, this is, this is real. Uh, Catholics should believe it. Okay, next one of the diva. So divine mother, immaculately conceived. This is virgin perpetually. This doesn't have a, a special feast day. This means that... <coughs> that Mary was a virgin before she conceived Jesus, when she conceived Jesus, and all the way after she conceived Jesus. A virgin, perpetually a virgin, 
uh, forever. This is St. Augustine, a virgin conceiving, a virgin bearing, a virgin pregnant, a virgin bringing forth, a virgin perpetual. Why does it matter? One, historically, the church has always believed it. I just quoted St. Augustine, 5th century. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest creed that the church uh, has, about 200 or so. Um, and that, in the, in the Apostles' Creed, it's confessed that Mary was a virgin. Um, it's important because it means her, ch- her child didn't have an earthly father. That's what it means. Her child did not have an earthly father, didn't have earthly origin, but her child had heavenly origin, came by heavenly power, and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so it's just confirming, it's just drawing out what the scripture already says, the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, right? It's, it's connected to that. And this is a good time to point out too, everything we believe about Mary, we believe it because of Jesus, right? And so you saw that with the divine mother. I call her the mother of God because I call Jesus God, right? I say that she's immaculately conceived, saying she's been saved by Jesus, but knowing that God would want to have a fitting place um, for uh, his son to be received, right? And then here, I confess that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, like St. John says, right? And so I confess that Mary was a virgin, that, that her child didn't have an earthly father, his origin was from heaven. Oh, and this great image, and Mary is the moon, right? The church fathers talked about Mary being the moon, and then wherever you talk about Mary, you talk about the church too. They're images of each other, and, and the church being the moon too. Um, the church doesn't have any light of itself. Mary doesn't have any light of itself, the way the moon doesn't give off light. The moon reflects the light that comes from the sun. And so whatever I believe about Mary, I believe because of Jesus, she's reflecting the light that comes from her son. Misconceptions. So these are from scripture. These can get thrown at at Catholics in the church sometimes. It would seem to apply maybe Mary wasn't a virgin. Uh, Is he, speaking about Jesus, not the carpenter's son, is is not his mother named Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, are not his sisters all with us, right? So it's referencing that Jesus maybe had brothers and sisters, um, it would seem, and Mary would be their mother. Um, the Greek word for brother is adelphos, and it's not used as like strictly as we use it in the English, brother and sister. I only use that for people that I share parents with, right? In Greek, it's not used that strictly. You can use it for cousins, my brother or my sister. You can use it for cousins or close relatives. Uh, a, a more local example, if anyone, does anyone have Native American heritage or know about Native Americans, right? They'll, they'll use family. They're, I mean, they come from a tribal culture, and so they would use family words differently than we would, right? So if, if you ever heard uh, a Native American called an uh, older woman in their family, auntie, have you heard that? They're not, they don't mean it's my my dad's sister or my mother's sister. They just mean important woman I revere and listen to, right? And so the, the, this is common. And, and you'll notice too, brothers, called brothers of Jesus, not called sons of Mary. That would be harder to explain. Um, it's still hard, I'll admit that, like, because uh, how are they brothers? Did Joseph have kids before? I don't know. Maybe Mary had siblings. Maybe Joseph had siblings that had kids. We don't really know. It's not that clear. Um, 
Yeah. The Gospels, they're very like honed in on one thing they want to communicate, and then other stuff they don't really elaborate on, even though we want it to, you know? And so it's just, that's just, that's how they, and there's reasons for that. Here's another one. He, Joseph, had no relations with her, Mary, until she bore a son and named him Jesus. Uh, it would sound like, so until she gave birth, but maybe after they had relations. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It doesn't necessarily, until doesn't mean that. Sometimes you use it that way, like until then, but after we did. Um, but it doesn't have to mean that, right? And you'll notice, like, there'd be a, there'd be a contradiction going on, right? If, if, uh, if there was relations afterwards, the scripture would be contradicting itself. So uh, you would just take the more simple interpretation. They didn't have relations after. Who said what? Is it an article of faith that Mary is mother of the Lord and still a virgin? It is an article of faith. Who said this? Anyone? Anyone? Our buddy? Martin Luther again, right? He believed it. He believed it. Here's another one. There have been certain folk who have wished to suggest from this passage that the Virgin Mary had other children than the Son of God and that Joseph had then dwelt with her later. But what folly is this? It's folly to interpret that Mary was not a virgin and that they had relations afterwards. Anyone? Guess who? Uh, John Calvin. So there, there's a number at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, there's a number of reformers, uh, Protestants, people breaking away from the church and teaching different things. John Calvin is another one of those. So there's Calvinists. That's obviously named for him. But any type of reformed churches, if you've heard that reformed, um, that's following Calvinist theology. And so they would, their founder uh, would have. John Calvin was a lot better at theology than Martin Luther, by the way. And so his, his stamp matters a little bit even more than Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, historically speaking, he was more political about what he thought. He had political ambitions. He wasn't a great thinker. Assumption into heaven, another holy day of obligation. This was defined in the 1950s, 1950, August, or November 1st. All saints there. I never knew that. There you go. The more you know. These are the words he used. Mary the Immaculate perpetually virgin mother of God after the completion of her earthly life was assumed body and soul into the glory of heaven. This is kind of a funny thing. You can after the completion of her earthly life, right? He he's he's talking around a question the church hasn't decided, namely, did Mary die? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, he's talking around that, right? So normally death is um, associated with separation of body and soul, right? That's what we mean by death. But we know for Mary that uh, her body and soul are still connected and she's in heaven. So it doesn't seem like she didn't die the way we died, right? But she's in heaven, meaning her life ended on earth somehow. And so we're kind of caught. We don't have a good word for it. We're caught two ways. Um, and so he's talking around that. When her life finished, did she die? I don't know. She died somehow, in some sense. But not the way we died, because her body and soul are still together. She was taken to heaven. And so this moment is called, the, in the tradition, the Dormition of Mary. Mary fell asleep, basically. And you'll see pictures of it when you go to old churches and stuff. It's kind of a cool thing. So the assumption does not say that Mary died. Her life ended somehow. 
uh, but she didn't die the way we died. Death After death, our body starts decomposing immediately, but hers didn't. Um, the tradition of the church, including the early church fathers, say that she did in some way. Her body and soul were taken to heaven, but her body did not corrupt. And you can, this is a, and last, it's participation in her son's resurrection through God's power, not hers. And so this is a, this is a beautiful mystery. We're all promised by the church and by God that our bodies are going to rise at some point, right? The resurrection of the body we talk about in, in the creed on Sundays, meaning that at the end of the world, God is raising up all our bodies, right? Your body is a part of who you are. If I hit you in the shoulder, one of you, you wouldn't say you hit my body. You would say you hit me, right? And so a body is an important part of who you are. And so at the end of time, when we're with God forever, when we're eternally condemned, you need to be fully you. You need your body. And so God's going to raise your body and put it back together. Um, and so uh, it's an important thing. You also see she, one of the effects of original sin is the fact that we die, right? Um, God says, don't eat of the fruit or you will surely die, right? Death is, they ate of the fruit, so they experienced death, right? Um, and so uh, you can see how for Mary, who wasn't conceived with original sin, one of the effects of original sin being death, she doesn't experience it the same way that we do. And then the last thing I'll say, uh, so this thing about, you know, we're all going to be like this. Mary is like a stamp on the promise. It's, it's a down payment, you could say, on what's going to happen uh, for all of us as well. And so the way that uh, Bishop Vetter would say it this way, I don't know if he stole it somewhere, but uh, what Mary is, we will be. What Mary is, being in heaven, body, and soul, that's what we're going to be too. So here's a general principle. Et, et, in Latin means both and. That's how we do theology. That's how we, we do our believing. Um, it's not either or. So when we get in disputes with Protestants, when Protestants say something positive, like the, the Bible is the word of God, and that's where God's truth is, and we need to read it and pray with it, they're saying positive things. We need to do this, and this is important, and this is good. I'm like, hallelujah, brother. Yeah. But not that tradition stuff. Oh, hold on. No, both that. So it's not, it's not this, like, you got to pick one or you lose it. It's not this false dichotomy. It's both. Both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Um, either sacred scripture or the Eucharist. You got to pick one. Do they contradict? No, both. We want them both. Uh, confession, either a private confession or a sacramental form with a priest, both. We want, we want a private sacramental confession. There's some Lutheran churches that would still do a private confession. The, the Missouri Synod uh, branch, the more conservative branch, some traditions would still do a private confession. But no, we want both. We want a sacramental confession through a priest. You know? um, either you love Jesus or Mary. No, both. We worship Jesus and we honor Mary. Pope Francis is this great way of saying it. Whenever you knock on the door of Mary, Jesus always opens. Um, and so there, yeah, there's not a there's not an either or then at all. And in fact, devotion to Mary, true devotion to Mary, what always comes with it, greater love and devotion uh, for her son Jesus. I thought I'd show you some images. I like images. This is an icon. <clears throat> of the of the Annunciation, uh, you can see going on. Um, it's a cool thing. <laughs> uh, 
Um, a couple things to point out. I don't know if you ever thought about what was Mary doing when the angel came and rudely interrupted her. Anyone think about it? Have you thought about that before? Well, this artist, whoever wrote this, he thought she was doing her knitting, man. She was just doing her daily chores. You see in her left hand there, you see how the, she's holding these a little crochet and with yarn rolled around it. Isn't that funny? I love that because Mary was just, she was going in this person's imagination as he imagines what it was like for the angel to approach Mary. Um, yeah, she was doing her daily chores. She was going about God's will in her life that day, and then the angel came and interrupted her. So she, you can see she's supposed to be kind of in this surprise, you know. Um, another cool thing going on, you can see how she's dressed. There's blue underneath, and then she's clothed in red. In iconography, especially in other forms of art, colors are symbols for things. And so in some sacred art, blue would represent humanity and red would represent divinity and so mary underneath what is she fundamentally she's clothed in humanity she has a human nature but through god's <coughs> grace she is divinized she's made like god and so she's clothed on the outside uh, in red uh, in my classroom i have an icon of jesus and he's clothed the exact opposite he's wearing red and on the outside, his cloak on the outside is blue. And so Jesus is the exact opposite. He has a divine nature. He's fundamentally divine. He's a divine person. And he took on like a cloak. He put on himself humanity. And so uh, that's the symbolism there. And that's all I'll say about that. You can see the Holy Spirit overshadowing her and, and whatnot. You all see Mary's humility. Her, her head is inclined as the angel approaches her, that sort of thing. Uh, here's a cool picture I found. You can see on the right the Annunciation going on in much the same way. The angel is approaching uh, Mary. And I should say, too, even in Luke, when Luke talks about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, it's like a weird thing, what's going on. Normally when angels come uh, in the Bible, the people are, like, struck with fear or they're struck blind or, or something like that, right? And so for the angel to come to her, and not only is she not, like on the ground cowering or anything, the angel actually like greets her with respect, Hail Mary. And you can always see that in art with the angel uh, kind of bowing and stuff. But on the left there, do you see on the left, it's blurry. Wait, who's that on the left? Adam and Eve, right? And so this is a nice picture to show that, that contrast. Adam and Eve being ejected from the garden, it's blurry, but there's an angel above them ushering them out, making sure they're going, that's being reversed on the right. Or this one, what I just talked about, you can really see it here. This is a, a famous picture of the Annunciation. You can see how low the angel gets, the, the kind of reverential fear uh, with, 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 with which uh, Gabriel approaches Mary. And then one more, I like this one. This is a more modern one. Uh, but you can just see Mary. You can really tell how young she is here, 14, 15. And she's just sitting in her room praying. So rather than doing her daily work, um, she's just sitting in her room pr praying, and then this light kind of appears, you know. Um, so this is a different way of uh, imagining um, what happened. Just a word, I guess. You know, that's a beautiful way to pray, by the way, to take these mysteries. Uh, they're real human people. They actually happen in real places. Uh, and, and to 
try to fill in the details that the gospel doesn't give you, right? What was that like for Mary to be approached? What did she experience? What did she see? What was she doing? Where was she at? Um, you can fill that in with your imagination. It's a beautiful way to grow in love of those mysteries. The only mistake you can make is to get too attached to it. Like, I'm right about it, right? Don't let ego get in the way of your prayer and your imagination. Other than that, you're free. Go with it, you know? What did it, what did it look like, you know? So those objections, you Catholics worship Mary, you treat her like a fourth person of the Trinity. Clearly not true, right? In every way, we're saying Mary was still redeemed. She's not the origin of, of God. Um, she didn't, she's not great apart from God's grace. She's great because of God's grace. Um, God, Catholics worship God alone. Uh, the technical word, we would worship God. We would venerate and honor Mary. You Catholics, you would pray before statues of Mary. You're worshiping idols. When we look at statue painting, whatever, from the Bible, we're not worshiping those things. We're using them for our imagination, like I've talked about. And they're reminding us and helping us keep in our, in our, in our mind and in our heart the saving deeds and the saving words of Jesus. Um, and it's just the same. It's a human thing. That's what's great about being Catholic. It's so human. It knows human nature. It knows how we work. If you love someone and you don't see them on a daily basis, what do you do? You put their picture in your wallet. You know That's not an idol. It, it, it helps keep their memory and what you love about them present for you. I, I should say, too, so it keeps us in imagination, and it helps us teach. Like, I, I kind of showed that with that art. It helps us teach and represent and, and uh, in other ways, not just academic, technical language, but to express in other ways what we believe uh, very dearly. Why do Catholics pray to Mary? The Bible says that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. We're actually praying through Mary that she intercede for God before us. James, again, the Bible's on our side. The fervent prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. James commends us. And this, this is from the New Testament, the epistle of James. Um, James commends us to, to seek the prayers of others. And we do that, again, human. We do that very naturally. When I'm in trouble, I, I go to people, I tell them about it, I ask them, please pray for me before God. So it's very, very natural. Mary's the most tender mother of the human race. She's the refuge of sinners. But I just want to point out here, um, you know, Mary being perfect, it doesn't, it, it can happen in some people's imagination that Mary is this perfect, exalted one uh, so high up uh, before us, I can never access her. I can never, you know, approach her. You know, Mary's perfection is not an obstacle for us going to her. It actually makes her more available to us. It makes us more. It makes her more like us in a sense because she's what we want to be. Um, so her perfection, not an obstacle to us, not a reason not to go to her. It's precisely why we should go to her, and it's precisely why we can feel close to her. You know, holy people are not self-centered. You know, they're not focused on their own needs. They're focused on other people, what they need. And so her perfection makes her more available to us, not less. I think John Paul II's Episcopal model, to Jesus through Mary, that's a good life model to have, to Jesus through Mary. Take her as your mother, as a, as a sure guide um, to Jesus.